This is All That Matters. I'm Liam Cody. And I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. All That Matters tells stories about arts and culture. Each week, we take small bites out of a big question. This week, what does it look like when you've made it? Uh, this week, I've been reading a lot about Octavia Butler, one of my favorite sci-fi authors. She wrote this book, Parable of the Talents, that I was really into. She's A lot of her themes are related to like slavery and how aliens will uh, be part of humanity in the future and time travel. She's a really, really interesting, like mind-exploding author. And um, this year is the 10th anniversary of her death. We're recording this in 2016. So um, Huntington Library in California has opened up their archives of Octavia Butler's um, writings and journals. And there's one thing that they released that I really, really love. Um, it's this note that she scribbled on the back of a notebook in 1988. Wow. Um, so by then, she'd gotten two Hugo Awards and a Nebula Award already. She was a best-selling author. Um, but still, she scribbled this thing on the back of her notebook that said to herself, I shall be a best-selling writer after Imago one of her next books. Each of my books will be on the bestseller lists of LAT, NYT, PWWP, Washington Post, you know, and stuff. My novels will go on to the above list, whether publishers push them hard or not. And she goes on to say, each of my novels will reach the top and they'll stay on top for months, at least two. So be it. See to it. I just love that she was like already at this amazing echelon and she was still giving herself pep talks. Yeah, it was like standing on top of the mountain and then being like, no one can take me off of it. No <laughs> one can pull me down. Um, yeah, but I guess like it's crazy because that feeling of, uh, of achievement just like constantly is uh, at your heels that you have to, there's something chasing you and you have to get higher up the mountain. Yeah. Well, coming up, we've got a story on a very personal window of making it. But first... What does making it mean? Mm. It sounds like hitting a plateau or achieving the next level. It's having done the work and now getting to reap the rewards, right? Well, I interviewed a bassist from an Edmonton-based band that has put their name on the map in Canadian music. And this question at the center of our conversation, do you think you've made it? I'm just going to take a, we'll do a photo here. This is Lyle Bell. He's the basis for a band called The Wet Secrets and an avid photographer, recent owner of a new 360-degree camera. I'll show you what it does, actually, yeah. Yeah, this is cool. We actually got this. I've never seen anyone um, use one of these for live. Like, we bought one of these to do live recordings on stage, like just do a song at a show. Um, And I've never seen anyone do the 360-degree. The Wet Secrets is a six-piece rock and roll band with swampy bass lines, primal drumming, dancing ladies with brassy horn stacks, keys, congas, and vocal harmonies. The kind of music that forces you out of your chair and dance like a maniac. And you can bet with a name like The Wet Secrets, how they got together is a pretty interesting story. Uh, basically, that the whole thing started as a, a dare-slash-joke, as a, almost... Every band guy in, you know, in there at one point or another will drunkenly say, like, yeah, we should be in a band. Um, we went one step further and booked a show while we were hammered and then forgot about it. You know, so the show was coming up and we were sort of, uh, we could either bail on this whole thing. And there were ads in view. Everyone's calling us and like, what is this band that you're going to be playing with? So as part of this art stunt, we either could have bailed on the whole thing but we decided to go the other way and actually 
make a band and write 10 songs. We, I mean, we had about 10 days to pull it together. So we didn't even know who was going to be in the band at first. It just happened to be sort of our little cadre of friends. Uh, but we had a blast uh, on that first show and had a blast that whole week was was kind of a a life-changing thing in a way because it certainly in a way changed how I go about music but um, that was a truly collaborative pro- uh, project where that first week especially was uh, everybody kind of throwing stuff in and I would be singing something and someone would say like are you saying are you saying this like why don't you try this you know or like writing like kim wrote some of the the lyrics it was like uh and a bunch of songs that we didn't end up using like needles in my salami which came from her like just kind of drunkenly rattling off some poetry um but anyway it was like this this collaborative thing and i began to see the uh the benefits of allowing other people's like input you know and it comes in in weird ways which i love So the band pumped out an album, and then they pumped out another one. And they were working on their third, but The Wet Secrets was still more of a side project. Lyle was in another band at the time called Shout Out, 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 and touring in the States. The drummer, as well as a filmmaker, Trevor Anderson, was off in Berlin working on a film. So technically we were still working. We were still playing like a few shows a year, but everyone's scheduled. Trevor also is a filmmaker that was... um, really gathering steam at that point, so he's off to, uh, he went to Berlin for a while. When he got back, we just sort of had to make a decision as to, there was no point in keeping it at this um, side project level, where we, where you play like two or three shows a year. Either we were going to fold it, fold the thing, and be done with it, or really try. So we were sort of intrigued by what would happen if we really tried to put all of our effort into it for five years. So we kind of made a five-year plan, loosely, yeah. That's about two and a half years ago that we were like, okay, let's do it. But we played uh, a couple shows, key shows. There was another big factor to the new um, change of mentality when it came to the Wet Um, Secrets, at least for Lyle. He was touring with his band, Shout Out, 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 Out. He was in Austin, Texas, where he put on, as he says, the worst show of his life. Wedged upside down. So this is a a shout out show at um, South by Southwest, sort of about six years ago, something like that. Um, And I... I wedged myself upside down. <laughs> everyone was mad at me for some reason, um, even though everyone else was equally smashed. But uh, the show was abysmal. It was the greatest slot we had. Like, you, you, know, you spend all this money to go down there and all this time. You've worked really hard. You get down there, and it, the whole thing is a giant party. So you drink for 12 hours straight and then try and play, and it's, like, impossible. But um, So you're sabotaging all this hard work that you've done. Um at the end of that night, I was too drunk to even load my stuff into the van, and everyone else, um, like, basically abandoned me. So I had to walk, try and walk back to the hotel with an armful of like keyboards and pedals and stuff like that. And I was like, "Fuck you guys!" And I could see the hotel. There was like four, like, spires of the hotel because I was seeing quadruple at this point, and they were like in front of me, but there was this, I had somehow stumbled into a construction zone and there was this giant mud puddle and a little hole in a chain link fence at the end. Um, I ended up like sledging through this, this like knee deep mud puddle and like dropped one of my sequencers in this like 
thing and got back to the hotel and was just kind of a wreck. But that, so this was sort of a low point pushing my gear through this like uh, through this little hole in a chain link fence in knee deep in mud. Um, anyway, that was kind of a I just decided to take a break from from drinking, um, which turned into uh, like it sort of really helped to clarify what I wanted to do. Like, again, that was for me anyway, sabotaging a lot of my creative efforts and usurping my time and usurping my money and making me fat. I also got home and had floating tits in the bath and I was like, no more. <laughs> anyway, and so, so Lyle quit drinking, which when you're in the music industry, isn't always the easiest thing to quit. You're playing at bars, concert halls, basically everywhere you're playing, you're constantly surrounded by drinks. Unless you're playing at a Mormon wedding. But that doesn't really seem to bother Lyle. Being in a band, you're kind of led to believe, you kind of, you're tossed into this uh, really easy lifestyle of, because there's booze always and it's, and everything is a party. And I do, there are certainly aspects of that, social aspects that I miss. Um, I miss beer and beer misses me. We're like conjoined twins that were ripped apart. But um, so you miss the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, but what you get in the middle is way better. And at this point, I'm also 44. So the Wet Secrets come back from their hiatus, and things are going pretty well. They release an LP in 2014, February, called Free Candy, and it wins the Edmonton Music Award for Album of the Year, nominated for the Western Canadian Music Awards, and they win the Peak Performance Project Award, over 100 grand that goes straight to the band and their projects. As if that weren't enough, they also get to play the halftime show for the CFL semifinals at Commonwealth Stadium and the Grey Cup in Ottawa. Aspiring musicians would look at that and say, yeah, that's making it. But that isn't necessarily the end of the road. Um, I don't really think that necessarily that is making it to me either. Um, as we've progressed here in these uh, last couple of years um, and our profile was raised, the peak thing certainly helped to raise our profile. We were taking these and getting these kind of cool opportunities, what I think are cool opportunities, because you're playing for people that are, aren't are going to be going to to Bricks or, you know, they're not going to see you at the bar that way. So you're playing to, like, families and little kids or grandmas, whatever. I don't know. I, and I kind of love that. I love being able to stretch out. So to some degree, we've been now given this opportunity that we're, we're getting these broader shows show offers which i think is cool um it's steps along the way the whole thing i mean i don't think there's ever a point at which that the, like a finish line where you cr- you know break through the tape and you're like done we made it boom um so it's just these baby steps the entire way you know um and it is it's a ton of work like i guess there are certainly examples historically of bands that have just right off the bat, you know, they're, they form and, and two months later they're, they're picked up by a label. They, the, everything works and they're just off to the races. But for, for 99% of all artists and bands, it's like it is – there is hard work. If you want to baby step your way through it, you got to work that whole way and hustle. It's like – so a lot of this last couple of years has been uh, a ton of behind-the-scenes hustling. And – 
So yeah, there's definitely a benefit to all these new accolades. New people are hearing about their music, they're expanding their fan base, but the game doesn't change. It's still playing your heart out no matter how big the crowd is. They're always here for you. Um, I mean, the, my favorite thing in the whole wide world is when you get to a small show and everybody is going insane. Uh, and, and it just sort of inspires the band to go bananas. We've played so, so like some of the, the funnest shows, like top 10 shows have been kind of little, little tiny basement cavern clubs or, or even house shows. We've, we've done a bunch of like sort of smaller parties that just turned into the wildest, most fun, <laughs> insane nights. Um, there's something that, that feels real to me and just feels really exhilarating always. Um, these other things like playing a giant show is also a, a thrill for sure. I mean, I grew up, um, my grandma lived, like I, you could throw a pickled egg from her house and hit, uh, Commonwealth Stadium basically. So, uh, we used to go to Eskimos games all the time. So getting to play that halftime there was kind of a personal thrill for me. It was kind of, I've been to a million Eskimos games, so. Being uh, able to get onto the field and, and yeah, we and they were great. Like they, they allowed us. Like we had full access. We were the sound check was at nine in the morning. We actually had to get up at five and come back. Uh, we were on the road, but uh, um, so we kind of staggered in there. But they they were great. We actually got to run around on the field and throw the ball around for a while until they booted us off the actual field. But uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Those kind of things are. They're rewarding in in a polar opposite, but still, but equal way in a way. So. Thanks to Lyle Bell of The Wet Secrets for speaking with us. You're listening to All That Matters. I'm Liam Cody, and I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. All That Matters tells stories about arts and culture. Each week we take small bites out of a big question, and this week we're asking, what does it look like when you've made it? Before we get to our next story, I have some exciting news about something we've made. Oh, do tell! All right. Well, a few intrepid listeners have already sleuthed this out for themselves, but since I've been chugging through our episodes to get them all uploaded, we haven't really talked about it on the show before, and now I can announce we are officially on iTunes. Ba-ba-ba. So if listening live or from our website is uh, not really your bag, you can download us and take us with you now from the iTunes podcast store. Oh my God, you just totally blew my socks off. I think I see them. Uh, I think I see them on the wall over there. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I try to please. <laughs> uh, well, for our next story today, we wanted to talk about one of those times when making it means something more personal. Uh, Sharon Bellion is originally from Trinidad in the West Indies. When she first immigrated to work as a nanny in Toronto, she had pretty major difficulties doing something a lot of us take for granted, which is reading. She had a daughter, she moved to Edmonton, and for a while, she got by. She found ways to deal. But all that changed a couple of years ago. I spoke to Sharon in Edmonton. When you left Trinidad, uh, where would you say your reading level was at? Actually, maybe a zero. (laughs) I can read. Yeah. So when you were a kid, what were some of the barriers to you learning to read and write? I was so ashamed, I'll be honest with you, that every time in the classroom when the teacher is about to pick out kids to um, say a story, I used to squinch down behind other kids that I would not be found. 
she will not see my face or I pretend I'm sleeping or something like that, that she will feel, don't wake her up or something like that. I never really love to be in the public because of my reading skills. Or in Sunday school, they will want somebody to read the Bible and they're gonna randomly pick somebody. I am in the bathroom already because I don't want to be there because I can read. That's a strong feeling to have so young. Do you remember why it was that you felt embarrassed at that time? Because I could not read anything. I felt like, a, honestly, a loser because I could not read nothing. I felt very much like a loser because, like, it's good to read. You have to be able to know your way around reading. Reading is powerful, yes. What were some of the um, problems that that created for you when you were younger? I did not have much girlfriends because, like, girls like to show off, forgive me, because they can read, some of them read a lot, and you have to be able to read things, like they used to read, um, I think it was novels or something like that, and they had all these love books that certain age had wanted, and I couldn't share it in any of those stories, so I kept myself to myself. What were some of the ways that you learned to adapt around not being able to, to read the stuff around you? I look at things and I kind of like put a landmark, a building like, you know, where I want to go. And or I like, I kind of like kind of figure out how many lights to that building I wanted to go. That means like lights, traffic lights. And in my head I check. And if I'm on the bus, I check. I can't like in Toronto, it's not about streets. It's about um, names like Dundas or university or I'm in the subway. I check how much stops I make, how much it's made when I get the first stop. And then I remember it's about 12 stops to my stop because I don't remember how to, I don't know how to read this. So that's how I get around. Or I will tell somebody actually, I lost my glasses. Can you tell me how to f find that place? Or what's how you spell that? Because I can, my glasses was, I didn't have no glasses. I just use those things. Wow. Um how many people knew that you weren't able to read? Just my parents. I didn't send them to nobody. My mother was very sad about that because she was actually an honor student. My father was more like me. He could not have read, so I guess the same way he take the skills of building houses and not telling anybody, I pick up that adaption, how to do things like him without reading. Yeah, but it's a scary thing because then you're really lost. My mother always want me to learn to read. My mother always, they spend, I think it's around seven o'clock in the night after school trying to make me read. And I felt very lost, very lost. Like what's wrong with my brains? Honestly, what's wrong with my brains? Why I'm the only kid in the family could not have read apart from my dad. And it was a depressing time for me. Inside I was depressed, but I didn't say anything to anybody. Yeah, I felt dark. There's something missing, and that's something with reading. Sharon got by like this for years. Then her daughter started school. Well, I remember my daughter first went to kindergarten. They used to give her work. And my biggest thing is, in my mind, please don't ask me to help you because I have no clue what you're doing. And I remember she used to bring home things and tell me the teacher said, Mommy, you have to read it. And I was like, oh, God. I don't know, so I will call up a friend of mine's little boy and could you help Samantha this homework? And then I, the turning point for me is like, you know what, she's gonna get older and I will want her to be educated and I don't want her to be like me hiding into the, some closet or some dark 
place in her life. I wanted to have an education. And because of my 15-year-old girl, I just said to myself, you know what, I'm going to be the example for Samantha. And that, that's my, my, my jumping point there, Samantha. Sharon loves all people, but I remember one of the first things she said to me when she saw me, she said, I'm so glad you're a Canadian and you don't have an accent. She yeah. said, that's going to help me learn to read. Sharon told a coworker about her struggles with reading. He was a teacher himself, and he pointed her in the direction of the Center for Family Literacy in Edmonton. That's where she was paired up with a tutor named Elaine. Uh, well, my name's Elaine Andrews, and I'm a volunteer tutor with the Center for Family Literacy. And when I lost my job, I was trying to figure out what to do. And someone said, well, you love reading. Why don't you look into the Center for Family Literacy? And so I went there as a volunteer, and they told me about Sharon, and they didn't tell me very much about her before I said, yes, you know, I'd love to, to work with Sharon and to help Sharon. And I first time I met my tutor, I was so shame or shy. She, I won't be shy with people because she getting into the spot that I always hide from people. I'm not a shy person, but because she was getting into that space that nobody was supposed to get into, I don't know how to read. So I was feeling very shame of myself, but I was so glad that she came because I wanted to read. But yet still, there was every time I go to read, I feel so ashamed. I keep my head down. I keep my head down, and I don't want to look up because I don't want to see if she's seen how I'm feeling about myself. But after she keep coming and she keep coming and she keep reading to me and assuring me that it's okay, it's okay, it's okay because she's so patient. She's so loving. You can feel that love about reading. She just wanted to... I asked her before, why she want to read to people? How come she want to read to people like me? She just wants to share that knowledge. And that something happened there because this beautiful, educated woman wants to share with people like myself who don't know how to read. It's so extraordinary that somebody gave up their life to read to people like myself, and it opened my understanding that I'm getting free reading here. Let me take it. So I just learned to just enjoy it, and I enjoy it. And I don't ever, ever want to say in my mouth, I hate reading again because I don't hate reading. I love it, love it so much. I own about six books. And the other thing that stood out for me is Sharon always wants to do things on her own. So if she gets to a word that... She's not sure what it is, or she can't pronounce. She'd say, don't tell me, don't tell me. I want to do this on my own. And she's really good at, at sounding things out. And her reading fluency's really improved since the first time I, I met her. And also her love for reading. I mean, she used to say she hated reading, but yet she felt it was something she needed to know, and she wanted to set a positive example for her daughter. And... Um, the other nice thing is Sharon wants to continue to grow, like this is just the beginning for Sharon. Yes. What, what did you know that you wanted to do that you were not able to do um, without literacy? I always wanted to help children, little kids and special needs kids after I have Samantha. I wanted to have help special needs children learn to read because I noticed people think that, special, some people think that special needs kids are unlearnable and I know it's not true. So I always said to myself, I want to be able to help these kids and I just want to be so patient with them and show people that these kids just have a disability but they're not stupid. So I want to be able to teach them how to read just like myself. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I'm in school and there's something that you have to, like a test or something like that, I have to study really, really hard and somebody have to read it out for me before 
and then I have to put the answer in. I don't want nobody reading it for me. I wanted to do it myself now because the hardest thing was to read things for myself. Hmm. And I, I was ashamed. I was ashamed. So now I want to be proud of me. I will read it. I fill my own forms in the doctor now for my, doc my daughter. Whatever it is, I fill it out. I feel like I want to give you a high five. Can I give you a high five? <laughs> <laughs> Sharon has climbed her way up to about a grade four reading level. But in many ways, her struggle is one that all of Canada is facing. According to Stats Canada, only about half of adult Canadians have at least what's called level three literacy. That's an international literacy benchmark. It's on a five point scale. So half of us aren't there. Below that level, people struggle with reading the news, learning a new skill at work, reading warning labels and safety manuals at your job. One in six adult Canadians would have difficulty reading the label on a bottle of medicine to make sure they're taking the right dose. A 2013 report from the OECD also showed that people with low literacy are more likely to report poor health and be more socially isolated. Believe it or not, Canada's actually getting worse at this. According to Stats Canada, our literacy levels actually dropped from 2003 to 2012. I mean, that's part of why I want to high-five Sharon. And I wasn't the only one. I was with Elaine in the car, and she told me to open the letter that I got last night. I didn't even know what, I didn't click. When I opened it, she said, you read it. And when I read in it, and I reached the point that it tells me I'm winning an award, I almost collapsed off that chair. I couldn't stop laughing, I couldn't stop smiling. I was so happy. In January 2016, the Center for Family Literacy gave her their Lois Hole Memorial Literacy Award for adult learners. At the ceremony, Sharon read notes from a speech that she wrote herself. It's such a pleasure because I never thought one day in my life I'll ever be owning something about reading. And this is not just for me, but it's to help my daughter to get ahead to be whatever successful she wants to be in life. And for people who is listening, that maybe a 53-year-old like me that think, oh, I'm too old. No, you're not too old. You can do anything you set your mind to do, but take up that book for the first time. You'll never want to put it down. Just be patient and just ask God for guidance, and he will guide you with a great tutor like Elaine. So, Chris, it sounds like Sharon has reached a point where she finally f felt like, okay, yeah, I got there. I've done it. Mm -hmm. Even though she's got goals ahead, if we're talking about making it, it sounds like she has. So why do you think that feeling is so elusive to the rest of us? I think it's because we value professionals sometimes to an extent where we feel like, ah, what they're doing is like way beyond us. To an extent where we think like, oh, okay, that person is good at that thing. So that's off my plate. I don't have to worry about being good at that because that's like a totally unreachable, unattainable level Maybe it's like the amount of comparison that we have to each other in society right now. Yeah, I think it's something along those lines. Like uh, when you see like people at the top of their game, and because we live in a world where you know we get have the celebrity culture, and the, um, we're able to see people from all over the globe, we're able to see people like achieving the best, and also getting like all uh, the support they need to be able to get up there. And we're and you know you're at your journey early, like oh I'm a storyteller down here, storyteller up there. Oh my gosh, I'm so far behind. I have so much work to do. And you can immediately start making those comparisons within yourself and the the best of what you see around you. Yeah, when you can see them on Instagram every day making something awesome. And that kind of like momentum and that kind of motivation can be good, but it also can be like extremely daunting as well as it's 
a semi semi fabricated thing, right? It's 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 all about what you're seeing and not so much about what's actually happening because that person is also just going like, what what the heck am I doing, <laughs> right? All right. Well, I think that's all we have for today. So uh, that does it for this week on All That Matters. All That Matters is a product of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. If you have thoughts about today's show, let us know on All That Matters at CJSR.com. You can also reach out on Facebook and Twitter. We usually give a sneak peek uh, to each week's episode on there, uh, and this week we have posted a 360-degree panorama of myself and Lyle Bell in studio. And one last thing I would like to say uh, is that the, the Wet Secrets have released a new EP called I Can Live Forever. Check it out. It's on YouTube and uh, on the Twitters and on the uh, iTunes. Yeah, that's the other <laughs> one. <laughs> well, our theme music is by Dakashi Teru. Additional music today by The Wet Secrets and Rasheen Murphy. Check out our past episodes on our website, All That Matters, cjsr.wordpress.com, and on iTunes, of course. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. And I'm Liam Cody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>